Wait, you have a deck of playing cards over there? Yeah. Do you play poker? I do, not as much as I like to. I just play poker online with some of my old friends the first time in a long time. It's very fun. Texas Hold'em? Yeah. It's my game. You play? Oh, I play. Oh, I play. Here comes the river. Welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I'm joined by Sylvie LeBeau. Sylvie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. What's going on in your world today? What's got you amped up? Or what's got you very, very uh, engaged? It's got me very, very engaged. Oh, man, this feels like a stumper this morning. So you're tell what I'm hearing here is no engagement. You've got you just zero. Kind of, you've become a nihilist. Engagement. I care about nothing. I care about nothing. You cracked me. You psychoanalyzed <laughs> me. 2021, no engagement, no cares. What's got you talking too loud over there? You know, I think as I, I hold this deck of cards that no one can see except you. We've been doing magic tricks around here. And I grew up. Oh my! Yes, Savit. Yeah. Wait, no. Tell me. Tell uh, me. Sorry. I grew Didn't up mean to interrupt. loving doing magic tricks as a kid. And if anyone who has watched or listened to Brandwagon knows, I am very obsessed with magic. Uh, I just think it brings so much joy, and uh, you know, it's it's a performance. It's a game. It's a trick. It's everything. And Zoe, my five year old, has gotten really into it. I have a trick that I want you to do. You want? I want to teach you this trick. Okay, I was I like, think it's gonna... I, here, I thought you were saying, "Hey, <laughs> hey, Chris, I'd like you to do this trick now." Go. I'm like, yeah, what are you talking do, about? Do three card Monty on a podcast. I think that would really, <laughs> you know, that's some great content. No, my dad taught me this trick called Black and Red. Okay. I promise it will it will blow the kids' minds. Okay. It will blow their minds. I can't give it away on the podcast. All right. You're going to tell me Can't later. Can't give it away. <laughs> maybe you can tune in next week. Okay, so you're going to teach me the trick, and I will do it, maybe document it somehow, mm -hmm. and then I... I think maybe you okay. should film it. All right, yes. that sounds good. We'll do it. Amazing. Well, speaking of magic, speaking of demystifying, today we have Julia Austin on the show, who is a product management expert. Julia is doing a year right now as an executive fellow at HBS, but she's been a senior lecturer there in the past in their management unit. She was a CTO of DigitalOcean. She was early at Akamai and VMware. Julia has helped a lot of companies figure out how to build and scale products. She is a product and technology coach, and she is someone who has helped us at Wistia learn a lot about demystifying these processes. So very excited to have her on the podcast today because actually... We had her before and uh, had our first uh, major meltdown glitch uh, for in our we recording. We did. Yes. But tis the magic of podcasting. We get to do it again. Let's do it. Julia. Thank you for coming back on the show. I know that actually technically we haven't released an episode with you yet because I am ready to admit I failed uh, <laughs> it to hit record in our first conversation, which Oops. is insane. Oops. <laughs> but you know what? When you're building something, you make mistakes, you got to learn. So thank you for being willing to, <laughs> to come back and spend more time with us. And it was funny, even just today when we were getting set up to do this interview, 
you'd plugged an external microphone in and we ran into a funny issue. Like what, what just happened? Yeah. Well, like first this is of all, so classic. Yeah. And, and thanks for having me back. And I, I really appreciate that you admitted that it was, you know, an, an error on your part. Uh, we, <laughs> we all make mistakes and I had a tremendous guilt that it was me. So I feel better about that. So um, I was plugging in the external microphone and uh, bad user experience is when you plug in a external device and the light comes on in the device and you just make an assumption, oh good, it's on. And we couldn't figure out why my microphone wasn't working. And it turns out there's an additional on switch, which made mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. to me because there was no tactile or visual response from turning it on. So there was no difference. No new light came on, no indicator that said, now it's on. So I thought that was kind of a lame user experience for a microphone. That's super lame. I, yeah. I have the problem that I have this an external mic that I now is my podcasting mic and now has become my Zoom mic. Like I use it for all yeah. my meetings. But I have to have this adapter thing to plug it into the computer. And if I don't change anything, it stops working unless <laughs> I turn this little dial, which there's it's like similar. It's like it's working perfectly and you go away and you come back and new meeting. If I don't just turn the turn dial, the dial. Then it doesn't work. And it's I have there's been so many meetings I've been in someone's like um, is there a reason you're so quiet? <laughs> and you know me. <laughs> so there I do know not you. A reason. No. Well, look, I want to talk about product and I want to talk about product management. I want to talk about being an early adopter and you and I are both early adopters. Mm. But I also, I was thinking about our last conversation. I'm thinking about my relationship with you and how I've gotten to know you and like, you really helped me see what product management is, I think. Oh, thank you. And, you know, we went years without having product management at Wistia, as mm -hmm. you know, like a very, very long time. And it's a surprisingly common thing that like founders start a company and they somehow end up with a product and they don't have anyone in the product role. And I thought it'd be interesting for you to just kind of, you're an expert in product management, you teach product management at HBS. I've been at some of the demos of the classes, mm -hmm. you know, that you've that you've put together of like people launching products. Can you explain to our audience, like, what is product management? How do people do it? And how do they make sure that they don't end up with a microphone that has a blue <laughs> light, like it's working, <laughs> and a switch with like no, no UX? So how do you stop that problem from happening? Yeah, so we'll work backwards from that. But uh, to that point, the first thing that occurs to me when I run into a problem like that, and going back to your point about user experience and, and how important it is to understand that, um, my reaction is, Nobody watched a user actually use this microphone. Nobody actually, like an average person, not the engineers at the company, not the founder of the company, whatever, didn't actually watch somebody try to use this microphone. And so a lot of what product management is, is being the eyes, the voice, the representation of the customer. And that can take many different formats. And so people ask me all the time, what's product management? What does a product manager do? And it is, the, I would say, probably one of very few jobs at a business where the answer is almost always, it depends. And it depends because it, it's different per company, type of product, stage of business. Uh, there's so many variables, but at the core is this concept or, or understanding of their job is to understand that customer, understand their experience, understand their pain points, understand the drivers, the emotional impact of whatever it is you're building. And that could be a B2B SaaS company, it could be a microphone. It could be a beauty product. It could be anything. It's really understanding it from that perspective and then marrying or tying that to, okay, how do we go build that? How do we make decisions around what's most important? And being the voice of the customer often is 
I don't care about that sexy thing you want to build, Chris. There's actually some really basic things that your customers need right now. And they're going to love the product more if you build those things, even though to you, they're not that exciting, right? Should we build those exciting things? Maybe, but these other things are just as important. So that's a big part of a product manager's job. So that core of voice of the customer, understanding user experience, understanding execution, they don't have to be technical. They don't have to be developers. Certainly depends on the type of product where they might need to be more technical than in other cases. But at the end of the day, they understand how all the puzzle pieces come together and serve as that voice. And then how do you balance, the to the example you just gave of, you know, there's a bunch of shiny, sexy things that someone wants to build, and then it's like, actually, you're missing like core functionality. Do you think there's a, a way or a, like a paradigm of thinking about when within a product vision, like how much of the stuff should be the innovative, sexy, different stuff that people point to and talk about and how much of it is the core? I think it's, again, goes back to the depends column, but it's it's where you are in the, in the product, right? So if you're MVP stage, you know, just past ideation and trying to build your first version of something, uh, you really want to do basics. And that's where I see a lot of early stage companies fail is they try to do too much too early. And oftentimes it isn't that exciting. You know, if you look at pick a product, if you look at Uber in the beginning, it was, let's just figure out how to get customers to get into, back then it was a you know black sedan. It wasn't a, a consumer car. Uh, what will it take for people to just get in a, a car like this? And what kind of user experience do they want as the everyday person taking a, a black sedan to go to a friend's house or go out to dinner? And let's not worry about the driver experience. Let's not worry about fancy GPS. In the beginning, the early stage of that product was they were using a dispatch company to actually do the dispatch. They were doing a lot of you know bubble gum and, and scotch tape on the back end just to get the basics of car needs to show up, person needs to feel safe getting in said car, and person needs to get to their destination. All the fancy things, that'll come later. So again, product management is is getting down, distilling it down to the basics in the beginning. And then, yeah, there's this, this balance of, okay, like what's the stuff that we need to continue to do to make just a solid user experience? Like, you know, have some kind of vibration when I turn on the microphone so it, I know it's on, right? To let's do something cool where it's wireless or let's do something, you know, nice with whatever, some other integration that you might do. So I do think there's a balance and I think good product managers know how to, to balance those things um, along with, Revenue demands, cost demands, other things that factor into that. Well, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that, like, even if it's the founders, the founders need to do this job. Someone has to do this job from the beginning, whether or not they've mm. named it product management. What do you say to somebody who's afraid to give up their vision? I'm going to put that in quotes. Give up their vision, quote, <laughs> quote, um, to, to a product manager, like hiring uh, the first. Yeah. How do you help people get over that? Yeah, it's it's tough. And it really, uh, the the founders who are product-led founders, right? There are different types of founders. There's some that are very marketing or sales or business-oriented founders or operational uh, versus product. When you're a product founder, man, that's hard. And I think the, the very first thing you need to figure out is how do I build a trusting relationship with that individual, which doesn't mean great, come on aboard, here are the keys. I'm walking away from the car. It could be like, why don't you sit in the passenger seat with me for a while and we'll drive this together until I feel comfortable switching roles where I'm in the passenger seat. And then at some point, maybe I'm in the back seat. And then at some point I get out of the car, right? And I think those relationships where we we see how we're working, we're thinking, you feel confident that this person who's stepped into that role 
can be your voice, but also more importantly, knows when to pull your voice in. So I think uh, Steve Jobs did this really well when he came back for his second round at Apple, where he started to build a relationship with key people in his organization where they could go off and design the iPhone or whatever, but knew when to call him in for input uh, when there were things that were really required the jobs touch, right? And I've seen that at multiple companies where founders trust their product managers or their product leaders because they know they'll call me when they need me, when they need my input. So I've never seen, honestly, I don't think I've ever seen a product founder completely let go 100% of the product, but they have that nice trusting relationship. They find some way to yeah. have like, yeah, to have people yeah. taking things further, but not giving up. Right. And that the- can take, sorry, it can take form in different ways. It could be routine product sync up meetings. It can be roadmap planning meetings together. It can be even a Slack channel where, you know, these critical things that come up, we all get visibility and transparency into it. But that trust to the product manager to make decisions is critical. It can't be a hub and spoke model. It's like, you can do everything, but don't make a decision. You have to come to me for that. That that can be paralyzing for a product manager. Savage, are you a product founder? Is that how you'd like classify yourself? I wouldn't say that I care a lot about product, but I would say Brendan is more like definitely the product founder. I mean, I will admit to designing interfaces in the early days that Unfortunately, some of them were built. <laughs> uh, but but can I challenge you, Savage, on that one yeah. a little bit? Because having yeah. the great honor and privilege of hanging out with you guys uh, at Wistia back in the day when we had offices, you have strong conviction about the vision and direction of Wistia, not just as a business, but what the sort of feel and nature and personality of your products, which I, th- I love that you and Brendan share that vision and and even complement each other in some ways and when you're um, not agreeing on something. But like if we look at Soapbox, where I was there in the beginning of Soapbox, just seeing how that product evolved was very much fingerprints from both you and, and Brendan yeah. on that. So I do think you are a, a product-oriented CEO. It doesn't mean that's all you are, but you definitely, yeah. you care and that matters. No, Oh, I care a ton. I care a ton. And I, I, the reason I asked the question is I was thinking about when we first started making product management and how scary it was. Yeah. And then of course, looking back on it, duh, like <laughs> <laughs> of, of course, of course we needed someone to do product management and would they have did it better to like, you know, spending more time with customers and with the teams that are talking to customers and, you're right. I think there is a way to scale that you can have your fingerprints on the right things, but like there's a lot of people taking things a lot farther and, you know, fixing things and finding solutions that you wouldn't find, which is a, it's, we've gotten to a very nice symbiotic place, mm-hmm. but it is, it took a lot of work and it still takes work. It's a funny thing because now we are, our project and engineering work is like 50 ish people or something. Wow which is pretty big. And it was a hard thing to realize like, oh, to scale, we have to give these things up. As we've gotten bigger, we have the things that I still think about and I don't have the answer to is that what scale should we still get involved as we're scaling the product? What I mean by that is like, well, there's a lot of stuff we want to tackle that we're not doing. Right. And there are certain things you look at and like, well, Brendan and I like want to go spend time and like get excited about something on our own, but that subverts the process. So Mm. it's always a balancing act of like, everyone want to talk about this new thing? Oh, they do. Okay. I have a few ideas like, (laughs) or, or trying to set up the problem for people to solve. And the other thing I've been thinking a lot about that is a challenge. And I'd be interested to hear your, your thought on this 
is as a product-led company, a product or org, whatever you want to call it, gets bigger, the changing the speed is something that I think about, which is mm. like, how do we dramatically sometimes speed up and sometimes slow down, like slow down and get closer to the customer, slow down to fix things that we've already built and like our existing things versus this major sprints towards totally new things. I'm wondering how you think about navigating that because that's a definitely a challenge that we have. I'm sure a lot of people deal with this, like how you affect the speed of a whole organization, a whole yep. company is a different challenge when you have a more robust, learning, healthy, like product org? So the number one concern I see from companies as they're scaling is becoming complacent and, and sort of settled, right? Like this thing works. And, you know, there's this adage and there's a great book with the same title, what got you here doesn't get you there, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was good enough to get us to this point. Uh, we have a great sort of cash cow thing that people recognize our business as being the thing we do. Uh, we have employees who are maybe getting bored or not as fired up. We have customers who are now sort of peeking around and looking at what else is out there and why are they doing that. So remaining curious about that sort of stimulates this we need to keep going kind of thing. Speed versus quality versus addressing user needs are different things, right? Yeah. So can move too fast. I don't believe in the move fast and break things thing. I think you can move too fast and miss it. <laughs> You can move at a reasonable clip where uh, new things are coming out, but very thoughtful and being mindful, going back to that point of understanding your customers and their voice and, and what's important to them. You never stop talking to customers. There is never, ever a reason to stop talking to customers. And the trick is to have a balance. So the companies that I see scale beautifully, uh, and I'll, I'll just use VMware as an example, since I was there for many years and saw scale from a tiny startup to 15,000 people and billions of dollars in revenue, is nurturing and maintaining the cash cow, the initial product, but then through conversations with customers, through a bunch of innovation efforts we did internally to just foster new ideas and new thinking and fund sometimes really crazy things and fund some things that are just needed carve outs we were able to continue to grow our portfolio of offerings to our customer as opposed to just continuously working on the same thing. And so the way I think about it is what needs to move fast because it's maybe new, just like you'd move a, an MVP of a new company. And what are the things that should just stay at a steady clip where we're continuing to make an existing product better? You have to do both. So it's not, we all need to move fast in one direction together. It could be this needs to move at a steady pace and this we need to just crank and do the the quick discovery investigation iteration process that we would do if this is a brand new product. So carving you're out- You're saying break up the org a little bit and say like, all right, there's the core problem that we already know that we solve and we're talking to customers and we're trying to make it better and we're constantly improving and getting rid of technical right. debt and doing all these things. And then if we're going and we're sprinting on new things, really try to delineate in the organization like, this is going to be new, which means we're going to treat it really differently. But eventually this new thing is going to become part of the core. And so it's like this. Right. Or not, right? The, the, not. Gr the great companies are the ones where they come up with four or five new things and decide to kill most of them and just run with yeah. one that seems to really be bearing fruit. Uh, and I see a lot of companies fail when they don't do that. They, I call it peanut buttering, where they spread <laughs> all the sticky stuff around everywhere and they get nothing done and they can't figure out why are we not getting anything done? It's because you're an inch deep on too many things, which what are the things where this is a model that I put in place a lot of businesses I work with. What is two or three things that you want to go for and what do they need to look like at a very time boxed 
uh, period for you to decide whether they're worth continuing working on or not. That could be user adoption. That could be the type of customer feedback you get. It could be revenue. It could be hits. It could be whatever it is you come up with in terms of metrics. Set those and agree. If we're within a range, you don't want to set a hard number and be off you know, by some small amount and say, oh, we failed. We have to kill it. You know, within a range, it has to be somewhere around here. And if we are, then that's worth going. We should keep going and learn more and, and, and do this thing. If we're way below that, cut it off. We can always revisit it later. So don't do too much, but do enough new things that you're experimenting and know, have some kind of rules of engagement before you get into it where you know when to just say, kill it. It's, it's not worth going further. Yeah, I think the killing it part I, I, I love and... It's a funny thing to wrap your mind around when you are just starting and then when you've done it long enough, like obviously you're going to do things that don't work and yep. that seem like great ideas. And so you go in and you can say, this might not work, everyone, but we're going to give it our best. It's amazing the difference that framing makes. Yeah, and, <laughs> when you- and, yeah, and, you, and when you celebrate the failure, so at VMware, I ran an innovation event every year and we would have, I don't know, 200 things that were proposed as we got to be a bigger company, which is nuts, right? Uh, we would celebrate just the fact that we had that many ideas brewing at the company. And when we picked a couple and didn't pick the others, nobody felt bad. There's were not picked as the next thing we were going to fund. They were excited. They were part of the process. And when they saw year over year, new things kept coming out. They said, we were part of that process. We got to see some cool, maybe mine will be, you know, the next thing I come up with will be the next thing, but celebrating the failure or the quote unquote killing of things inside a business like that can be, what fosters more and more innovation because people are given permission to fail. One of the other things I think about when I think about you, Julia, is like you're an early adopter mm. and you often evaluate products and companies when they are very, very early. Mm-hmm. I've seen you do this in judging competitions. I've seen you do this. At, we had an internal competition at Wistia. I've seen you do this at Harvard. And I know you've also used this framework for like Deciding when to make investments, investing mm-hmm. early in Slack, investing your time in joining DigitalOcean, joining Akamai. Like yeah. you have a, a very solid record here. What is your framework for how you make those assessments? Like, how do you decide when something's really early if you think it's going to take off or you think it's really interesting or it is worth investing in? Yeah. So, for all the companies that you cited that I've worked with, the product was clearly addressing a pain point. Right. So uh, start with, you know, at Akamai, it was early Internet, like early, like late 90s. And the pain point was it's really freaking slow and it's just going to get slower as more people get on the Internet. And I didn't even fully grok what we had built. It came out of MIT. It was super nerdy. I was I like anything nerdy. And I said, you know, that makes sense. You know, the Internet's going to get slow as more people get on it. I understood the basic mechanics of networking. And from there, it's like, okay, check that box. The problem makes sense. And they hadn't overbuilt anything. I mean, the algorithm was sexy, but the the problem wasn't anything more than just pushing stuff to the edge so it worked faster. And then the next is the people. People were really cool, humble, not arrogant, really smart, just decent human beings that I really felt I could believe in and work with. And VMware is very similar, right? VMware was just being able to let developers boot two different operating systems at the same time versus shutting one down and turning it back. It was just so basic, right? Like that's all we were at the beginning. It's a yeah. multi-billion dollar company. And all it was at the beginning is <laughs> devs want to be able to run, you know, Linux and Windows at the same time. Like, duh, that's like so simple, right? Yeah. So I was like, yeah, but that makes sense. As I was talking to them, I was like, could you do this? Could you do this? And I started listing all these possibilities where, where the product could go. So that was, I guess, the other part is a vision. So when you look at basic capability, pain point, 
vision of possibilities of all the different places it could grow and scale. So I saw it. You know, Slack was the same thing. When I invested in Slack, it was like super basic, easy to use. I was on it in a heartbeat, which my user experience was amazing from day one. Like I can spin up a Slack in like less than 10 minutes and be off and running. No friction. And then I could imagine all the possibilities inside organizations with how the product could be used, integrations, all these other things. It was like, obvi, this is going to be like, a, you know, everyone's going to love this, right? It's just like obvious to me. The people being the other part of it. And then the market is the last piece, which is just, you know, is there a big enough TAM here? Is there an addressable market where, you know, it could be cool, but if not many people are going to use it, I'm not that excited about it. On the TAM front, I feel like that's always the one that gets like tripped up because mm. I feel like there can be a big market, there could be demand for something right. that they just didn't know it existed before. How do you think about that? Because I, I feel like a lot of what you're saying, first of all, I agree with. And secondly, I feel like it's like you can be an early adopter of using a product or investing or actually I think evaluating where you want to work. That's right. what I was thinking about as you're going through. A lot of that is like what you're saying is when you're picking a place to work, when you're picking a place to invest in, you invest your time in, it's like, are they solving real actual problems? Right. And are the people like passion, smart, have maybe some edge for that? And then are there enough people who have that problem, right? Is it that simple? Because it sounds really simple, but it's a very hard thing to actually do objectively, I think. I totally agree can, with you. Can I play the newbie card for a second? Can you say what TAM stands for? Sure. So TAM <laughs> is total addressable market. It is absolutely, to Savage's point, something people mess up all the time. Um, how do you decide what the, the addressable? So who's going to buy this thing? Right. And what is the value one places, revenue opportunity one places on who's going to buy that? So, you know, if you look at VMware or, um, yeah, let's just pick up, pick VMware. It was a, the developer community, it was data center operators, it was CIOs, it was, you know, if you go out and say, what, what are they spending today on technology and on managing their data centers or managing the developer servers or whatever it is, what are they spending on that today? And how do we get a slice of that pie, right? So divert that spend to us, right? And to, Chris, to your question of new things where people don't even know this is a problem. I mean, you could say that, again, I'll, I'll use VMware as an example because it's, it's close to my heart, but virtualization sounded really complicated. Like, what the hell is virtualization, right? And so we would boil it down to, all right, you've got a bedroom uh, and you have one kid and now you had a second kid, but you don't have a second bedroom for the kids. So you get a bunk bed. And now you get two kids and people are like, oh, I get it. That makes sense. <laughs> right. So how many people have that problem? Is this big enough? Whether it's working for a company or investing in a business, I say that's a cool problem. So actually, I'm going to shamelessly plug one of my students' businesses. So uh, she made, uh, she and her co-founder made these stickers, which are a QR code that just says scan me on them. Business is called Found. And it's basically a lost and tag sort of replacement for that other hard piece of um, product that some people know that they use to find their keys or find other things. But this is a very washable, sticky, I've had this on this phone case. It's So it's a little tiny square, like a quarter of an inch by a quarter of an inch, maybe a little bit bigger than that. I've had it on this phone case for, I don't know, a year and a half, isn't going anywhere. And when she initially had this, it was for consumers who lose things. Right, like losing stuff, right? And she was inspired, and this is not uncommon for most product founders with her own problem, which is she lost her wedding ring on her honeymoon. So she's like, that can't happen. And so, so anyways, so she comes up with, uh, I want to help people try to 
you know, find the things that they lose was sort of the problem. And are there enough consumers that lose things? Yes. I mean, there's no doubt in our minds. But what she realized as she started to evolve her product that there was a B2B opportunity where there were a lot of uh, product makers, whether it was a very expensive winter coat or it was your fun Yeti bottle or whatever it is where the makers of those products were saying, we have a bigger problem. It's not only are the consumers who buy our products losing them because we sell through retailers. We don't know who's buying our product because uh, we have no information. So it, there's a dual purpose now for this tag, the found tag, which is not just help the consumer find the thing when they lost it, but help the maker of the products have more information in a non-creepy private way about who's buying their products. You know, if they're buying them at H&M or they're buying them at Macy's or they're buying them on Amazon on whatever, they now have access to information they never had before. Holy crap, that's a really big problem, right? That's and awesome. That's, right? Yeah. So she went from like the cute little tag you put on someone's iPhone so that they don't lose it to really big problem for wholesalers and retailers, not just the consumer. So when I hear something like that and look at something like that, I say, that's interesting, right? That's not just some, you know, it solved my problem, but now you're solving a lot of problems and it's not very sexy. I mean, the thing, the product itself is pretty basic. Nice little app, you register the thing, it tells you where your stuff is. And if someone finds it, they just put their phone up, you'll get a text message that says, you know, Chris Savage just found your iPhone. Would you like to get it from Chris or have him leave it somewhere? Would you like to give him a reward? It's pretty basic. But it's sweet because it's like, it's something that is very, very simple. And it sounds like the example of getting to know the customer really well and realizing there's another part of that puzzle. Like you're buying the stuff, that's who you thought the customer was, but it's actually also the people making this stuff. And then suddenly giant market, giant opportunity, giant thing. Right. And when Kate was doing her discovery work, she played the role of product manager as a product founder and did things like left random items with found tags all over Cambridge, Massachusetts, and just saw what happened when people found them and what they did. Uh, And then tried a bunch of other experiments before she got to where she is. And it goes back to your initial questions around what the product manager does is they're not afraid to do experimentation and iterate like that until they, they have those moments where they click and say, oh, this is the problem. This is it. This is what we need to go do. That's awesome. I want to show you a product that I have over here. Let me grab it. <laughs> He's been waiting. I have to grab it <laughs> and I'm going to bring it back. Okay, Savage, what you got for me? All right. So this is a very, very simple. Um, but I'm <laughs> Did ver- you invent it? No, is it your I did not invent oh, it. Damn. I, did not, I <laughs> wish I did. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. I did not invent it at all. But years ago, there was <laughs> no. There was, you had this idea. No, right? I had a different Everyone idea. Says that. A different idea. <laughs> a different idea that Brendan and I talked pretty seriously about doing for like a few weeks before Wistia took off in that first year. Gotcha. This is like the other life you could have had. This is the right, other like, life. Like You're sliding, sliding, sliding doors. Sliding doors. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I have to watch that movie. Again. So okay. basically, <laughs> all it is is this. This is a tiny tiny pod of coffee called Cometeer and okay. it's frozen. It comes okay. frozen on dry ice. And the pitch is you get instant coffee that is delicious and smooth and flavorful. It's always available. It only takes as long as it takes to make as long as it takes you to have hot water. And I have hot water that's like on demand. So basically you take this thing and you just put it in the coffee like in the cup of, you're putting it in a I'm cup of hot water? I'm just putting in hot water, yeah. Okay. Hold on, let me show you. 
Get in there, little buddy. This is the second time now we've heard about Cometeer. On, I'm on so obsessed with it because it's so, so good. And when you're like stuck at home and it just like is amazing. Okay. So while you're trying to, so I'm interested in. in your user experience and trying to get it in. Okay. So it's in. <laughs> so it's in. And now it's an ice cube. And now you probably can't see that. It's melting. Oh, so oh my God. It, so it was an ice cube. Okay. Yes. Got it. It was an ice cube. It melts in about 15 seconds. And it's honestly. Okay, I didn't expect it to be that quick. Amazing coffee. It's absolutely delicious. It's so good. And is it common varieties? Comes in different varieties, a bunch of light packs, dark packs, mixed, all these different coffees you've heard of. Um, yep. It's also fully recyclable. So you can take this, the whole thing can be recycled, the box can be recycled, everything that comes can be recycled. So, you know, I have one of those Nespresso machines. Yep. Which I like it, but it annoys me because like the I can recycle the pods, but you have to bring them to FedEx. You get it's this whole like rigmarole, yep. and it's this is so simple, and it really doesn't save me that much time. I I know, but somehow it saves me enough time, and the coffee's so consistently good that I've been switching from like pour overs and all these other things to just like this is my main thing. And yeah, it's it's ridiculous. So. What I just heard was, and this is putting my product manager's hat on, is a few emotional responses. Yes. So the emotional response of environmental, like you care about the recycling, uh, consistency. Yes. Was a word that you use that you know you're going to get the same cup of coffee every time, which is important. Enjoyable. So you enjoy it. It's not just that it's consistent and you're saving the environment, but it's actually a decent cup of coffee for oh, yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the for you is the the part that I listen for because, and especially for anything beverage, coffee, I, I've done a lot of stuff lately with companies that are focused in this area, can be highly personal or it can be experiential, right? So using pour over as an example, I have a couple of friends who just swear by pour over and I'm convinced has nothing to do with the taste of the coffee. They just love the experience, yeah. right? The ritual of it. It's the the they're nerdy, they're or they're like they've perfected <laughs> it as like an art, yeah. you know, yeah. like yeah. yeah, like I just know and they measure. I have yeah. a good friend in Boston who's like prides himself that he like he knows their exact measure and when he grinds, he knows the right setting for the grind. Yeah. Like so you could say they're on the far ends of the spectrum of there's the no offense to anybody listening, but the double D drinkers, the Dunkin' Donut coffee drinker, sorry, that like (laughs) finds that to be an acceptable cup of coffee. (laughs) I just don't, but I know there are people who do. So that's one end of the spectrum to the connoisseur who says, if it ain't pour over with my craftiness, it's not coffee, right? So then you look at that and you say, okay, so is the middle between that enough to double down on a product like this? Right. I had another company I work with who was doing a um, a cold brew, and they they had perfected the manufacturing of the cold brew for environmental concerns, for consistency. They did a bunch of things, and at the end of the day, it was still cold brew in a can. That was hard to justify how that was different than all the other cold brews mm-hmm. that were out there. So, from a differentiation standpoint, you know, the consistency and the simplicity and the enviro part could be enough. It would be really how big is that market and how many people would be attracted to that, right? I love my Nespresso. I am the person who Federal Expresses back the the pods, um, but I like the variety. I like that I can try new blends. I like that there's different people in my household who have different kinds that they like, and we can all do it in the same machine. I like the design of the machine. 
So there's a lot of it that's appealing yeah. to me. And I, and I used to be the, I wouldn't say I was the craft coffee maker, but I used to think that that was sacrilege to use pods, but they convinced me that it was, yeah, that it was good high enough, enough quality right. and the consistency mattered to you and the speed and the cleanup. And, and, and yeah. Right. And the variety the, at the end of the day, I yeah. think what was the tipping point for me was the variety. It was like, wow, we can all have different kinds of coffee and I have one machine and I don't have to throw shit out and make it like, it just made a lot of sense to me. So yeah, but that in terms of product, what does a product manager do? Going back sort of the thread of when I look at that, I'm thinking, is Chris, well, we know you're different than everybody else, but like, <laughs> are you are you enough of a common denominator? Like, are you are there enough Chris Savages out there who would really find that appealing? Yeah, it's funny because that's how I think about it too, is like, I know I value the speed a lot and the fact that I don't have to think about it. It's a subscription and the fact that it's really, really good and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But it's like, is there enough of that? And it's like, I, I don't know. And so I guess your your point of like the framework, right? Dunkin' Donuts on one side with the craft people who will never be pulled away. It's just like how many people are in the middle and how many people right. value these parts in the middle, right? And that's right. That's and what are they making. willing? Right. And then what are they? What is the revenue opportunity there? If you're a double D, sorry, I say that all the time because I'm from Boston. Dunkin' Donuts coffee drinker who's used to spending a certain amount of money versus somebody who's going to La Colombe or, or a fancy barista in, in New York where they're going to drop, you know, 12 bucks for a cup of coffee. Who are you attracting? So it's not just, does this work for them, but like price point. The other thing I just want to use this as, it might not be the best example, but just riffing on this coffee thing is we, we tend to forget some of the, the hidden things that could be barriers. So I don't know what the packaging is like. I don't know how they come in, but you could say, does the average person who would want this have enough room in their freezer for it? Does it show up frozen? And, you know, if it's sitting outside for too long, they've just wasted their delivery. Mm -hmm. Is it like getting, you know, some of the, like a HelloFresh or some of the other things where like packaging and storage matter, mm -hmm. right? And I've seen a lot of products where they, they nailed the whole thing, except they like, duh, we didn't, we didn't stop and think about that part. Yeah, it's like funny because that is my concern is like I'm home all the time right now. So I am here and this thing is coming in and I'm flying through these things. But if I wasn't, or if I was gone for four days, like it has dry ice in it, how long will it actually right. stay cold? And that seems like if it will stay cold long enough, you're getting to a place where people would accept coming back their pile of packages of their frozen coffee and they take it out and it's good because the espresso pods are not going bad. Those are coming and you know had those delivered to the wrong place and they're going to show up and be good every time. There's a lot of barriers here, which makes it kind of scary to me as a business. It is also very good coffee. So that overcomes like the risk for me personally as being a customer, but like right. it is an interesting one to think about if I would actually invest or right. want to, you know? Right. And so, yeah. And the other thing I would look at is cost of manufacturing, right? So at face value, it could have all the things. Like it has all the things. Yeah. I love it. It's a good cup of coffee. But then you find out that, you know, if I'm evaluating as an investor is what's the cost to make these things and how scalable is that? And if you go, I don't know if they're already national. Are they national? Yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean in terms of does it matter anymore? Granted, right now, shipping is a nightmare because yes. of COVID. But in, in post-COVID land, will that matter yeah. or not? Would it, does it have more potential outside the U.S.? What does manufacturing distribution look like outside the U.S.? I mean, those are the other things that I would just like poke around and look at before I would go and invest in it. You have your answers, Adam. I have my answer. Okay. So cautious optimism. Cautious optimism about coffee, about comic care. <laughs> Julia, what what has you talking too loud right now? Any products have you talking too loud? What what's got you talking too loud? Coaching has me talking too loud right now. 
So uh, I recently finished my certification program, which was like this nine month crazy hour, like hundreds of hours of uh, training and, and practice and integrating that uh, into what I was already doing and advising product founders has just amped up everything. And I can't stop talking about that enough right now on the deeper insight as a founder, as a product person, whoever you are on sort of your inner workings and how you think and, and all the things that happen in your life outside of work and how that affects what you do inside of work has me really excited right now. Awesome. So like the balance of motivating the person and helping them take care of themselves emotionally to do better work, live happier lives. Yeah, but also understand the emotions and interactions of the people they work with. So integrating, you know, what I've learned through my coaching training and now seeing, you know, I've been seeing I've been coaching for years, but now appreciating the human dynamic of let's let's use fear as an example. So inside a business, often we operate out of fear. And so when you're going back to your, even your question about like letting go as a product founder and, and allowing a product manager to take over, there's an inherent fear in getting underneath that and understand what is that fear? What are we worried about? Is it about control? Is it about execution? Is it about uh, sometimes it's ego? You know, if it's not mine, you know, it's not good enough. Understanding that and understanding how the brain works, understanding these interactions and human interactions and helping even a product founder understand what's coming to them. You know, my new product manager just, you know, told me my my uh, product that I love and care for is ugly, like telling me my baby's ugly. Like, okay, what's going on there? And what I find often is that could trip up product execution, speed, the question you asked before, uh, board relationships, so many elements of that where if you don't get down to the root of like, why is that a problem for you? What's making you afraid right now? It sounds really squishy and sort of therapy-ish, but actually understanding it and understanding how you think and how people who work with you think and behave is a superpower. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. And if you can like I was just going to say, if you can kind of address that early on, it seems like it clears a lot of the debris, a lot of the fear debris anyway, and that you can actually move forward. Yeah. And I think when you any business that's moving fast, if we ignore the fact that there, there are humans involved, which can happen, and this isn't just resources and cogs and wrecks and, and all the other things that we think about, these are complicated human beings Savage, remember when we did that exercise uh, was a couple summers ago where we all were talking about capabilities and everyone in, in mm -hmm. your product team had a different definition for features versus capabilities. Gave you some insight into how people think and how they view the world. And when you understand that and how to unpack it and ask the right questions, get alignment, then you can create amazing things. But if you're stuck and you can't get there, keep Riding on the treadmill, you're, you're never going to get there. Yeah. I, I love that takeaway, though, that how people enter the world, their emotional state, their interactions with others, like, I mean, that is obviously, like, so unbelievably important when building a product or building any company or any organization. It's just, like, getting back to the core motivators that people have and the ways that people like to communicate. You know, it's like, I've learned there are people who will take hard feedback every day, take it really well, as long as it is written down and they see it in advance. And when you tell them... In the moment, they absolutely hate it. They And it's like, once you learn those things, it becomes so much easier to yeah. navigate and manage. But I also, I think a lot about the, um, 
from a self-care perspective, I like the oxygen mask analogy, which is like, yep. you know, everyone wants to put the oxygen mask on their kid first, right? Like that's your first guttural instinct is like, well, if the plane is losing oxygen, I'm taking care of my child. But of course, the only way to take care of your child is for you to be conscious. And so you have to put it on yourself first. And then I feel like in a company, it's the same thing or in any leadership position is like, you have to figure out how to take care of yourself emotionally and make sure that you're right. in a good place. And that is what allows you to be a good leader. It also allows you to be in tune with how other people are doing because you are thoughtful and present and there. And that's so, right. yeah, that's awesome. Well, look, Julia, I'm so happy that you came back on all this is the first time that listeners are hearing you. So <laughs> thank you for sticking with us as we had some product issues that we've worked through. We um, have, and we, and we learned a little bit about UX today, which was great. We learned a little bit about UX, <laughs> yes. Super fun. And I look forward to seeing you in person after this show's done. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Thanks, Chris. You know what's fun about talking with Julia is you can't help but get into all the other products that we're experiencing. So obviously the interview starts, we're talking about the flaws in the microphone and the bad UX, right? Bad UX. Bad UX. I, yeah. Why that's a problem. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm glad you agree. <laughs> you gestured at me. I thought you had it. I thought you were oh, still I going. Oh, I thought you were going to say so. I thought that was a podcast, <laughs> you know, tip and trick. It was like, oh, use the visual here in Zoom to, All right. to bring us back. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say that after that conversation, I definitely called my sister and I was like, I think I want to go into UX. Like that conversation was so fascinating to me to think about how people engage with their products. It's like so simple, but it's not. Yeah. And she's, yeah, go. No, I we're think, like, it, yeah, I agree with you. It's we're just so, stepping on it's, each other it's, today. For, it's so forgotten, actually. Like, I think a lot of products that are bad products, we can tell there's a problem. And like, it's a pretty, you know, consistent answer why there's a problem. They didn't talk to people using it. They didn't watch right. them using it. They didn't right. figure out how to evolve it and like who their actual customer is, right? Like, like the microphone thing, if this is like a pro tool, and someone's going to be trained on this and they're going to spend every day using it. You can get away with a, like maybe UX that's slightly more complicated if it's more powerful. But if there's no one doing that, then you end up with these things that don't work well, that waste time, that are confusing. And there is a real process for, of like discovery to figure out how people are actually going to use a product and how to make things so clear that people can consistently get value from them. Right. Like when she was talking about her student who made the tracking sticker. Yeah. And like leaving forgotten items all over Boston to like see how people engaged with that. I just thought that was amazing. And I don't know. It surprised me that it was like way more investigative. Like when I hear product management, it's so abstract. And then she really broke it down. So I mean, it's one, some of the in. stuff that's the most fun for me about building a company is that we have these ideas for things for how we think a product is going to be used or what type of problem we think it's going to solve. And then you don't actually know until someone's using it for real and they're paying for it. Is this solving the problem? Is it, or right. is, you know, cause we're all constantly looking at the world, like from a perspective, I think of, all right, here are these tools. How do I use these tools to make my life better, my job better, whatever. And people will use tools in surprising ways. Right. And in some places I feel like that's obvious if you're, you know, doing like home improvement or something, 
you could go use a hammer to like bang a nail in, or you can use it to pry up a board, or you can use it to break concrete, or you could you just take the tool and you figure out how to use it. But I think in tech, we often forget that people will use our tools for different things too. Right. And that's 100%. kind of what she was telling us is like, people are gonna use it for in different ways and just go figure out what ways they are. And maybe they're really good ways and maybe they're really bad and you should stop them from using it. I don't know, but like <laughs> paying close attention, I think is really important. And uh, yeah, it, there's a science to it and an art. Yes, a science and an art. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Cool. Well, Sylvia, I guess what this means is over the course of this year, we're also going to learn about your discovery into you kind of becoming a UX expert. Do you think that's going to happen? <laughs> we'll see. You know, 2021, the possibilities are endless. Nice. That's my new engagement. That's my new engagement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, good to see right. you. That was fun. And I'll see you uh, in t- two weeks. And listeners, remember, like us, <laughs> subscribe. If you have feedback, email us at ttlpod at wistia.com. And uh, keep keep trucking. Keep trucking. Yeah, I was wondering where you're going to go there. but Yeah, I know. All I right, everyone. I tried to lock it up. Keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day, executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Grant Cutler. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.